Greetings and welcome to Harvard Islamica, the podcast of the Al-Walid bin Talal Islamic Studies program at Harvard University. I'm Tariq Masood, the faculty director of the program and a professor at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. In this podcast, our executive director, Harry Bastarmajian, and our program coordinator, Miriam Qadhimi, will bring to you the latest exciting developments in the field of Islamic studies from scholars at Harvard and beyond. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. To learn more about our programs, follow us on Twitter at Harvard Islamic. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions at our email address, islamicstudies at harvard.edu. Please enjoy this episode of Harvard Islamica. Welcome to Harvard Islamica. I'm Mariam Kazmi. This episode is the first in a four-part series in which Harry and I speak with three former directors of the Al-Walid program about the history and future of Islamic studies, both at Harvard and, more generally, and their own experiences. This first episode consists of all three professors discussing the field more broadly. In the next three episodes, we'll hear more from each of them individually about their experiences as students and scholars. I'm Harry Bastramajian. We are thrilled to be joined today by three former directors of the Awali program to share their experiences and reflections on Islamic studies at Harvard and as a field. Our guests are Roy Marahera, Gurney Research Professor of History, William Graham, the Murray Albertson Research Professor of Middle Eastern Studies and Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor, and Ali Asani the Murray Albertson Professor of Middle Eastern Studies and Professor of Indo-Muslim and Islamic Religion and Cultures. Professor Graham, could you speak about the development of the study of Islam in the United States and more specifically, the development of Islamic studies within the history of the study of religion at Harvard, both in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and at the Harvard Divinity School? It did at the Divinity School, going back to George Foote Moore coming to the Divinity School, and I think I believe 1902, something like that. And he was here for about 26 years uh, till his retirement. And then he died in 1931. So he was 80 when he died. So probably he retired before uh, or before 26. But anyway, he was here for a long time. And um, George Foote Moore, of course, was also a Hebraist uh, who worked both in Judaica and in biblical studies. Uh, and Christianity to some degree through biblical studies, but really he was a Hebraist. And, uh, but he, of course, wrote uh, on Islam in his, uh, in his comparative religion, uh, a two-volume work uh, on the history of religions, and Judaism, Christianity, and Mohammedanism, as at that time was typical, even up through Gibbs' book, Mohammedanism after World War II, that was typically done and used. And so it wasn't unusual that he called it uh, uh, Mohammedanism. His second volume was devoted to those three traditions, the rest of the world having been dealt with in volume one. So that was much more the way in which, and he dealt quite widely with the rest of the world. I mean, he ranged into Sikh things and, uh, you know, sort of all over the place, uh, uh, Japanese, Chinese. I mean, he had a, a, a wide range, at least of, of general knowledge. Um, 
But that was very much more typical that Islamic studies, as we know, was often a corollary of, of simply Semitic studies. Um, that of course the core of which was always the Hebrew Bible in the Western world, uh, really into the mid 20th century, I would say. Uh, and it's only really post-World War II, certainly in America, uh, you certainly had Islamicists before that all over. You had the Neuraldikas and, and, uh, and uh, Fishers in Germany and so on. Uh, but in, uh, and in France, you had certainly the dedicated uh, Orientalists in the 19th century who were doing just Islamica, not biblical studies. But in America, you really don't start getting many of these people until after World War II who are dedicated to strictly to Islamic studies and not doing Islamic studies as part of their general Semitic studies and their biblical studies in particular. That's a, probably a gross generalization, but I think it's fair uh, by and large, if you really look at the history, people like F Philip Hetty coming to Princeton after the war and beginning to train it, the first real generation of dedicated Arabist Islamists and really Arabist at that point in the States. But in any case, there were people like this, they certainly there before the post-war period, but by and large, they were isolated individual scholars. You didn't have many programs. I think Princeton may well have been almost the first to really begin to develop a sort of program under Hetty uh, when he began, I think, to bring people in. And then a few years later in the 50s, Gibb began to do the same thing at Harvard uh, with the founding of the Middle East Center uh, and the... Um, uh, and, the, and hiring of people and so on. Gibb did not leave behind a large coterie of people. He may have brought Mactasy here, which would certainly have been a good thing. But, um, uh, but at any rate, the, uh, if you look at the Islamicists post-World War II, that's when we really began to get develop Islamic studies. And even then, it's really most closely tied to Arabic and to a lesser degree Persian studies. Uh, it still is not the kind of studies that, that Smith wanted to do and went to McGill in what, 51 or 52, to McGill to found the, Islam, the Institute for Islamic Studies at McGill on the basis of a global concept of Islamic studies, which Smith himself had become dedicated to after five years in India during the war um, in Lahore. Uh, and that was India, of course, at that time. And Smith uh, had done his early scholarship there knew Persian and Urdu well, and really believed that uh, Islamic studies should be global. Uh, so people like Smith and Hodgson were the exception rather than the rule. Uh, you mostly had Arabist or Iranist or Persianist uh, uh, or maybe Turkologist uh, who did those things, but Islamic studies was necessary often as a part of that and might even be a focus of them, but it wasn't a global phenomenon that they were interested in. They were interested in Turkish Islam or Arab Islam or Persian Islam or maybe two of those three. Uh, Germany had a longer tradition of people more widely interested in Islamic studies, but even there, if you look at the great Islamicists, Goldseers and Neuraldikas and so on, they were fundamentally Arabist, even though they knew Persian and knew Turkish and so on. They were fundamentally, they most 
most specifically Arab Arabist and often worked on the classical period. Uh, so that was the pattern in Europe, in France and everywhere else, I think, uh, in, in Holland, certainly, and in Italy and in Spain and in England and so on. That was certainly the pattern that you were a specialist in a particular language area and an Islamicist almost second, or if you were an Islamicist, you were very much most interested in a particular language area. Uh, that is one of the big changes, I think. How did developments in area studies and philanthropy affect the study of Islam at Harvard? Area studies was where the Social Science Research Council was making available monies after the war in the 1950s to go particularly to, to the, uh, uh, the, the nation, the big nations that were marked out as important for U.S. interests. Uh, political interest. So you had lots of fellowships for people. And you look at the people in the 50s and 60s that went to Indonesia. Geertz was one of the most uh, illustrious, but there were a lot of them uh, because there was all this social science research money and government money uh, available to go to places like that because it was a, uh, what do they call it, a high priority uh, oriental field or high priority, you know, non-Western field. And, this, and India was less so. Uh, it's in interesting, and so you, but you still had India with the PL 480 money, uh, as you had in Arabic and Persian and so on, you had PL 480 money. Of course, our Indologist here, Dan Ingalls, uh, Dan turned down the PL 480 money for the library here for years, because he thought you should only did Sanskrit if you did Indian studies. But, I mean, he knew a couple of Indian languages in addition, but he didn't believe that you trained people in Bengali or Tamil or, uh, or, or you know, Urdu, I mean, or Hindi studies or whatever. You trained people in Sanskrit if you were going to be an Indologist. And he, of course, was a great Indologist, a, you know, a globally great Indologist. And I expect it was very much the same in Chicago with von Boydenen, uh, the great Indologist at Chicago. He and, he and Ingalls were the two of their generation, the two great Indologists. And, um, but Sanskrit was what they did. Uh, and just like Arabic and Persian were what the Islamicists did. Uh, but that is what I see as having changed since the war. That's a pretty amorphous set of ways of discussing it. But I just threw all that in to try to give some idea of how I see one of the big impetuses for the development of, of Islamic studies has, of course, been that globalizing of the American view and even the European view to some degree, that was always much more global than ours after the war, when all of the European and American world had to be much more engaged with the non-Western world in the age of the end of colonialism and the development of new principalities and new you know, monarchies and democracies, et cetera, all over the world that had to be dealt with. I mean, the, new, the United Nations was emblematic of this, obviously, after the war, uh, and, uh, but also in scholarship. I think this was very much true. And governments did give money for people to go and learn, you know, strategic languages. Uh, and that, frankly, uh, in the end, had a big effect on, on fields that had nothing to do with strategic studies. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, I even had an NDFL scholarship that I didn't even apply for my last year when I came back uh, from the year in England and Germany to write up my thesis. Uh, I just got a letter in the mail saying, oh, you've been given an NDFL 
uh, a fellowship for your last year, which the Danforth scholarship I was on would have paid for. But if you got anything otherwise, they because they paid for your whole graduate education, they ask you to take anything else you got. So I actually studied my I did my write up of my religion thesis on a national defense foreign language um, <laughs> uh, a, a fellowship. Uh, which they just gave to me because Harvard had more than they had students, evidently. I don't know why else they would have just given it to me out of the blue. Uh, so, you know, it was a different world uh, uh, into the 70s. Yeah. And then from area studies, of course, then things like uh, Islamic studies as a, as a, as a field, uh, you know, as a cultural religious field, uh, uh, began to differentiate itself and it was not was really a part of both I would say of the traditional uh, uh, linguistically oriented philologically oriented studies on the one hand and then area studies on the other hand I think that would be fair to say wouldn't you Roy? Yes absolutely no the, the, uh, one of the fellowships I got along the way was uh, from the uh, Ford Foundation and they wanted to know that I, uh, as a uh, social historian, I'm primarily a social historian, that I had studied sociology and I had not. <laughs> so they assigned me, to, to, before starting the fountain, to spend a summer uh, working with a sociologist, which I faithfully did. Uh, uh, it's a, uh, uh, this, there was a sort of social science, there was a, the introduction of social science. Professor Gibb used to say, um, I am an Orientalist, but uh, he always used to be very polite to Bernard Lewis and said, Bernard is a real historian. I didn't think, I don't think Gibb's material and Gibb, Lewis's material are so different. I think Gibb was as much a historian as, as Bernard Lewis, but it's absolutely true that that uh, from my study of Byzantine and everything other kinds of history, I got a different orientation onto what what a scholar does, and it was a little bit different from Orientalism, mm. uh, but it was living a half life. Uh, it, it, there were not many people who, uh, I mean, Ira Lapidus was an early. Uh, example of somebody who tried to combine the social sciences with uh, with history in the Islamic field. And he wrote one very nice book, very good book, uh, and um, then oh, wanted to write a general textbook about Islamic history everywhere through the ages. Um, so it, it was very, very hard to plant uh, people as historians or uh, social scientists or anything uh, in the field because we had to learn a lot of language and uh, so much time was spent learning languages didn't leave as much time to learn uh, any specific social science including history The first director of the center was the, the first director was William Langer, uh, and who, whose course I audited, by the way, brilliant historian of international affairs. He, he did the, from the Congress of Vienna <laughs> up to the Second World War. He was terrific. 
And um, and he was the one, incidentally, who took so many Harvard historians into the Office of Strategic Services during the Second World War uh, to do information um, uh, uh, information uh, on uh, countries relevant to their uh, in uh, interests. Anyway, um, Langer was the first director. After that came Gibb. And one year after Gibb came, Roy came. <laughs> and uh, so uh, then separately, the Ford Foundation decided that area studies were weak throughout America. And they were right. They were absolutely right. So uh, they started offering big money as only the Ford Foundation could, big money for center, for uh, programs in Middle Eastern studies. We asked Professor Mutahida to tell us about Sir Hamilton Gibb, the legendary Arabist and Islamicist who inspired him to enter the field of Islamic history. Well, uh, he's really the reason I'm in Islamic history. I wanted to, I thought I would be a comparative zoologists or uh, do, com I, and the first year at Harvard, I took comparative anatomy or vertebrates <laughs> thinking that was my path forward. And, but uh, I also took first year Arabic and uh, Gibb came in for the first two weeks. Um, he was brilliant, he was terrific. Uh, I, I was impressed, but then at the same time I took his uh, course, no, the next year I took his course in the history of the Islamic Middle East, and it was magnificent. He spoke extremely well. He was very considerate in his choice of, uh, of words. He, he, it, it was uh, really a bravura performance. He had an enormous range because, you know, he had worked his very first uh, published work was on the Arab conquest of Khorasan. He, he, he was a wonderful uh, teacher and a wonderful lecturer. And he had a sort of large vision of what the whole thing was. So, you know, he had written uh, one of his poor, poor writings is his work on Ottoman civilization. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, he had worked on he had worked on the Ottomans. Uh, he knew Ottoman Turkish. Uh, he knew Persian well. Um, he uh, and uh, so he had a large view of Islamic civilization through those three sources. Maybe he didn't know quite as much about uh, East Asian Islam or Indonesian Islam, but um, he knew the regular uh, central subjects very well. Um, he he had a very great sense of the range of word of meanings for a word in Arabic, and he was very good at choosing the one appropriate to the context uh, of the text we were reading, and he would discuss that sometimes. Those very enlightening discussions. Um, you touched on well two things. One is um, Gibbs' range, right. uh, and also. Uh, uh, which is related, I guess, this this large vision of history. 
Um, and I think this is important for Islamic studies and uh, uh, the place of Islamic history in world history. Has maybe, I mean, I don't, I don't want to overstate this, but ha has there been over the years um, a loss of that, that, that big vision or that large, large vision of history, you know, um, and, and Islamic history sort of place within global history? Right, right. Well, I think this is sort of natural in the development of a discipline. I mean, at the beginning, people tried to have a large overview and um, uh, give sh pointed us to some important 19th century German works which attempted a large overview of the Islamic world. Uh, but um, at the same time, I think there's a stage when people, you know, want to fully uh, <laughs> fully trace in the details. And uh, so obviously Gip was strongest in, in those areas where he had worked. It, I was talking about the, uh, the Crusades and the Mamluks, and he, uh, Gib had translated Ibn Qalanasi, one of the great chronicles for the Crusades, the Arab chronicles. And he, uh, had also uh, uh, written the article for the Cambridge, not Cambridge, sorry, the um, History of the Crusades. Um, not, I'm, not, I'm trying to remember what publisher was. Anyway, he wrote the article on the Mamluks, very good article. Uh, he has a lot of, a lot of very, very good articles. He attempted too many books and uh, really died without uh, a sort of half of them being published. Uh, um, he insisted uh, that he was first and foremost an Arabist. And of course, his little history of Arabic literature, which he wrote when, I don't know, in his late 20s or something, is a gorgeous book. It's a lovely book. Everybody can benefit from it, re reading it now. Uh, and of course, he was such a good Arabist that, for example, in his translation of Ibn Qalanasi, uh, he uh, made some emendations on the basis of a bad text. And when a better text turned up, he turned out to be right for all of those emendations. Yeah. He, uh, let's see, he, he occasionally, um, I, I read Ibn Khaldun with Gib. Mm -hmm. Gib was a great admirer of Ibn Khaldun, I mean, just as a thinker, uh, and thought he was sort of more significant than just for his time. Uh, he wrote a famously critical review of the translation <laughs> by Rosenthal, saintly, saintly Franz Rosenthal, a friend of mine in his time. He wrote a critical review, and the second edition of uh, uh, of uh, the uh, tra Rosenthal translation is much revised. Don't buy the first edition. He wanted people who had very sound philology, but had some training in the social sciences. He was fascinated by the social sciences. Uh, and he uh, uh, he uh, fostered 
uh, Robert Bella, who was uh, for some, who, who, who was no longer alive, but taught at the University of California, who uh, was a Marxist, in fact, uh, but a Weberian Marxist. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, he wanted Robert Bella uh, as a sociologist to uh, develop a sociology of Islam. He had Bella teach a course on the sociology of Islam. Um, I found it a little bit mixed up, but um, but anyway, Gibbs uh, Gibbs' desire was to have people who have some strong idea about social bonds and uh, the composition of society, and indeed, of course, uh, uh, the first book by uh, Ira Lapidus, um, uh, Ira didn't want to go on as an Arabist, but his first book, which, for which is, uh, he used Arabic a lot, um, uh, he, he, uh, it, it's very much cast in a Weberian, Weberian mold. Um, and, and Ira did and probably does know, know his, his uh, social sciences well. Shimmel, professor of Indo-Muslim culture, was the first scholar of Islam in South Asia at Harvard. In 1970, she also became the fourth woman granted tenure in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. We asked Professor Asani about her appointment and how the professorship of Indo-Muslim culture came to reside in Near Eastern languages and civilizations rather than South Asian studies. So the background to this professorship, it was... Um... Uh, it was really the bequest of an Afghan entrepreneur. His name is Ozai Durrani, who um, of course came from Afghanistan, but then had studied in India, Aligarh Muslim University in the uh, early, I don't know, the early decades of the 20th century, where he studied Urdu language and literature and so on. Uh, and then he moved to the United States. Uh, he was an, uh, a scientist, uh, and he developed this whole process of instant rice. You know? mm -hmm. So the minute rice, you know, technology. And he made a lot of money, you know, working with General Mills, you know, bought the patent of that. So when he died, he left a bequest to, to his estate that um, uh, a lot of his estate was to be given, you know, was to be used for a professorship at a university uh, that would specialize in teaching Urdu language and literature. And so the trustees of that first approached Columbia University and Columbia University said no. So then they came to Harvard. And at Harvard, Richard Fry and Wilfred Cantwell Smith and Wilfred Cantwell Smith. So Richard Fry, you know about, but Wilfred Cantwell Smith at that point was teaching in, the, in religion at Harvard. And uh, by training is of course a historian of religion, but he's done a lot of work on Islam in South Asia. Uh, he spent actually time teaching in, in, well, 
India pre-partition and then also post-partition in Pakistan, in Lahore. So he was very familiar with the subcontinent. And so he was already here on the faculty and so, were Rich, so was Richard Fry, who was interested in Persian and materials. So between the two of them, when this Ozai Durrani estate approached Harvard and the president's office got in touch with faculty, they said, oh yeah, we have the exact, we, have, we should take it and we even have the person who should be you know, given this chair. And that was Anne-Marie Schimmel. And she was identified because first of all, she was a specialist in Urdu language and literature. Uh, she'd done a lot of work on Urdu poetry, particularly uh, Sir Muhammad Iqbal. She had also done poet work on Urdu poetry for on Ghalib and some other major Urdu poets. And plus she had, um, she had a fantastic background in Arabic and, and uh, Persian. So she had done work in Rumi, she knew Turkish, she had taught in Turkish, she had done research in Turkish. So this is why she, so she was invited to come here in 1967 as a, initially as a lecturer, but on this Indo-Muslim culture chair. And then I think in 1970, um, she became a full professor. And so, but then when it came to like where this is going to be placed in what department this is going to be placed, this is where the Sanskrit Indian studies department said that time, Daniel Engels didn't consider anything Islamic to be really Indian, right? And this is a perception in Indology generally, and you still find it among scholars who do Indian religions. They consider Islam in South Asia to be foreign to South Asia, and in a way, they are picking up, you know, this Hindu nationalist, you know, discourse that influences how they think about. So this is why it ended up the chair actually ended up in Near Eastern languages, but, but it also fit in because she also knew Persian, she knew Turkish, she was interested in Islamic calligraphy and so on. So that's why the appointment made sense in a way. And that's, so that's how NELC became the home for the Indo-Muslim culture program. Mm -hmm. I know it was the first program in the United States to focus on Islam in South Asia. And it's just, uh, it's remained there. I, I think also because if somebody wants to work in Islam in South Asia, they do have, they do need to know Persian really well because Persian is an important language. So it's actually a field that straddles. It doesn't, you know, the Harvard departmental structures are, you know, are, are total artificial creations. They don't reflect the reality on the ground you know, the way you divide the world. This is South Asia and this is the Near and Middle East, bogus. It's all based on, you know, Western notions of, you know, where boundaries are. But when you look at it from the ground up, the boundaries don't lie that way at all. So what we now see is Afghanistan, you know, the Mughals considered part of their territory. The Mughals in India thought their territory went all the way to what is Central Asia you know, Bukhara, Bukhara and Samarkand, mm -hmm. you know, which today, you know, colonialism and the boundaries, and then we have the university is a product of those artificial boundaries that are created. So unfortunately, in this case, the chairs, you know, the, it's, it's in Near Eastern languages and not in South Asian studies. Mm -hmm.
Why is the global study of Islam that is comparative and interdisciplinary important for the development of Islamic studies? Well, I mean, obviously there are a number of answers to that, I mean, because I think there are lots of reasons that it's important. Um, but I do think this, uh, this globalization of the study of Islam is really simply a rational development. If you're going to study that tradition, the Islamic tradition, you can't do it any way except globally, uh, or it simply is, is just simply a very partial kind of study. Now, nobody's going to know all the languages you need to do it globally, but as a collectivity, we can do that. And I think even people with a specialization in one end of the Islamic world today have a need, frankly, to be very much aware of the scholarship going on in other ends of the world, even if they don't manage the languages. I mean, I read a fair amount of stuff about um, you know, Southeast Asian and South Asian and even Chinese Islam over the years. I've read quite a, a bit because, and African Islam because I feel like I can't be an educated Islamist, even if my language uh, abilities don't extend into those areas. I need to be reading the people who do have those abilities and who are writing the good books and the good articles uh, on Islam in these areas because it always opens up, I think, new questions uh, in your own special corner of Islamic studies, if you know something about Islamic, what's going on in Islamic studies in other areas. I feel like that about comparative study of religion, comparative history of religion. Um, I think the most fruitful things I've worked on sometimes in comparative uh, work have come from my deeper work in Islamic studies, where I develop some questions that I then take out of Islamic studies that people aren't asking in Indian studies or in Chinese studies or whatever else. And you bring the stuff there and start asking them there and vice versa. My reading more broadly outside of Islamic studies has often suggested to me questions that Islamicists really aren't asking uh, in the same way that a Sinologist or uh, you know a Japan specialist uh, or an Africanist would be asking. Um, so I think that in general, uh, you know, comparative studies is, is now simply a desideratum across the scholarly world, uh, not because you just want to do comparative studies, but because all studies should be comparative. I mean, ideally, that's the way it should be. Again, I mean, I'll quote Wilfred Smith on this. He said, comparative studies is a ladder to get out of a hole into which the true scholar never falls. Mm. Uh, so that was his word on comparative religion, in a sense, but on comparative studies, uh, in that if you're going to be, you know, a really, a really first rate, I think, humanist or social scientific scholar, you need to have a comparative vision and viewpoint, even if you don't have all the expertise to do the primary work cross borders, uh, you need to be aware of what the people who do are doing. Uh, so that, to my mind, is why it's so important for Islamic studies uh, and any Islamic studies center to have people doing work in these different areas because it's fructifying for, uh, for each other to have this, you know, among a group of scholars, to have people working in different things and listening to each other and seeing what so-and-so is working on in South African Islam is going to be an interesting question for what's happening in American Islam or in Chinese Islam. Or at least it may enable you to ask questions about your own field that you hadn't thought of before. Because we do tend to follow in the footsteps laid out before us. And we often tend to, you know, we get trained in a certain way and you ask certain kinds of questions. And you forget that there are lots of other traditions of scholarly questioning. 
Uh, so that's my, at core, that for me is the best rationale for either for comparative studies beyond Islam or for comparative studies in the Islamic world, uh, broadly speaking, rather than just in one corner. Oh, the only thing I think you mentioned before that, uh, Miriam, you, you mentioned, Miriam, uh, was, of course, the business of comparative religion and so on in the place of Islamic studies. It certainly is true that for various reasons, I think because sometimes, uh, you know, uh, scholars steeped first in Western, well, not just in Western studies, but let's say in Judaic and, uh, and Christian studies, uh, it's you know, they somehow feel that Islam is derivative. I think there were many, many decades and even centuries, perhaps, of feeling that Islam was derivative of those two and therefore worth a footnote of study, but not really to be focused on. It's why Hindu studies and Buddhist studies uh, and Zoroastrian studies and so on and so forth uh, drew many more people uh, in many ways than to Islamic studies because it was always studied as an adjunct, or not always, but largely studied as an adjunct to Christian and Jewish studies. And you see that even in how Quranic studies in the West developed, uh, because it still was seen, I mean, even by people as great as Nerlika or Goldseer, I think they still is an element of that, seeing it as a derivative tradition based on biblical and Christian uh, footing, which of course it is, I mean, historically. But it, it, with lesser, with them, it was less of a problem with scholars of their, their level. But for the average scholar, um, it was an excuse then to say that the tradition is derivative and there's nothing new there. Whereas, in fact, the Islamic tradition, like other tra all other traditions, is always, in a sense, recreating things every day and doing new things with the old things. Uh, and so that's where I think we can see that Islamic studies finally being recognized, again, I think in the post-war period, at least in this country, uh, as a legitimate focus within comparative religion um, is, has become you know, almost equally important, if not equally important to any other uh, tradition to, that the comparative religion world studies. And in some ways, Judaism and Christianity were always excluded from comparative religious studies. Comparative religion meant the traditions of Asia, almost mm -hmm. with, with Islam as a kind of addendum to that. And Christian and Jewish studies not even as part of that. But I will say that that's where comparative study religion has changed a lot in 50 years too, in becoming a global focused tradition where you can just as easily be studying Christian and Shinto uh, uh, rituals together or Islamic and Chinese rituals together, uh, you know, any one of these are now much more common and possible things to look at comparatively because we think much more globally in the comparative study of religion than we were thinking even 40, 50 years ago. Uh, so I think that's been a development in comparative religion that is very parallel to the development within Islamic studies of a global Islamic studies, if that makes any sense. No, it does. I mean, you, and in both cases, I think it's helpful. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you, it's fascinating, you know, we see this, Miriam and I see this in the, uh, the, the Harvard catalog from the late 19th yeah. century, where on the same exact page, uh, <laughs> you have at the very top, you know, a course on the history of world religions, which includes Zoroastrianism, right. uh, Buddhism, but excludes 
uh, any mention Islam, of the Christianity and Judaism, right? And, and, yeah, <laughs> but excludes any any yeah. mention of uh, of Islam. Uh, and it's it's fascinating because just a few years later, you see then the the history department then puts a little footnote in that ca same catalog saying, if you're interested in studying Islam, go take Semitics 14 with right. Professor Toy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this, I mean, here at Harvard, at least, this really only changed in the, I think, really in the 1960s and forward. I think Wilfred Smith coming did parts of that because he taught a year-long comparative religion course. It's the first course I ever took in religion, actually, uh, his year-long comparative religion course, where he included Judaism and Christianity and Islam as units alongside units on Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Zoroastrian, and everything else, you know, Japanese religion, etc. They were all treated on an equal basis. They all got three weeks in a year-long course. Uh, and so it was hardly a deep dive, but it was seeing the world of religious traditions comparatively as a level playing field in a way that was not, would not have been the case 10 or 20 or certainly 30 years earlier. That was the 1960s. He arrived in 64. I think my sort of experience coming to Harvard and actually getting into a comparative studies, you know, comparative religion program, um, and then working with uh, someone like uh, Anne Mary Schimmel, who specialized in Islam in South Asia, had great interest in the languages and literatures of South Asia, uh, became important. And I think later on in my graduate career, um, Wilfred Cantwell Smith had come, you know, had been at Harvard, then he came back at Harvard. And when he came back, you know, I also had the opportunity to teach and work with him. And of course, he was really delighted that I was doing all this work in Urdu and Sindhi and things like that. So I think I, there I had, you know, another sort of uh, mentor who really believed in the studying Islam outside the Middle East and especially in South Asia. Um, but I, as a graduate student, I felt quite isolated because there were no, you know, most of the people were saying Islam are just focused on the Middle East. You know, mm -hmm. nobody was doing anything outside the Middle East, uh, you know, in any of my, you know, in any of the programs. And I've always felt that, you know, Islamic studies at Harvard is actually just being fused with, you know, has been uh, sort of merged with Middle Eastern studies and, um, it just in the course offerings and things like that. And so when I started, eventually started teaching, uh, I made sure that my courses, you know, in the Gen Ed and things like that were really presenting Islam as a world religion. And I would include material, not only from South Asia, but because of my background also in African studies, because I was raised in in Kenya, I knew Swahili. I got very interested in Islam developed in, in Africa. And then I remember also in high school for A-levels and things like that, we had taken West African history, East African history, and some of that touched on Islam. So I was able to read more. I, I'd taken courses on, on, on African history here as well. And so I was able to bring in those perspectives into uh, into my courses to make them truly global courses uh, in, in the way that I, in the, you know, in their scope and, and really trying to disabuse students of the notion that Islam was just Middle Eastern because that's the popular stereotype. So it's parties like breaking that, uh, that notion. And I think in that regard, I've also 
been very interested in talking about Islam as a living tradition that it's global, but it's also, it's not just out there, but it's also American. So I've been able to, in my courses, I always end my courses on Islam by looking at Islam in America. And I've been doing that for, you know, several decades now. So I always have a unit of, and within Islam in America, I've tended to sometimes, because it's, it's a growing field, but I've tended to focus on African-American traditions of Islam, like the nation of Islam and things like that. So I think being in the study of religion uh, has actually encouraged that kind of perspective, you know, that I think what, uh, you know, Wilfred Kentwell Smith would totally approve of, you know, think about it as global and not being in an area studies program. I think even my, even though my doctorate was in Near Eastern languages and civilizations, but within that I was in the field of Indo-Muslim culture and that was focused on South Asia. And I've always thought that, and maybe this sort of also ties into the gift of the Al-Walid program, this idea to globalize the study of Islam. Yes, very much so. That I thought was a very, yeah. And I think that was a very interesting uh, move. And, you know, I think we're, um, you know, we're going to, you know, we're seeing like, you know, at least with, with Osman Khan, now we have, you know, Islam in Africa and, and we've, you know, and I think they're using one of the Al-Walid chairs now to do Islam in America. It's going to be, it's going to be used for the study of Islam in America as well, which is going to be interesting. And unfortunately now also the Divinity School now has hired somebody who's a specialist in Islam in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's not on the Al-Walid Fund, but it's on Divinity School because I think the faculty there um, recognized that Islam in South Asia was important. And so I think for the first time, you know, Harvard is sort of poised to offer an Islamic studies program that is truly global and having faculty in all these, you know, different areas. I think the one area that, you know, we are missing is, you know, Central Asia, uh, you know, because we don't have any, but that's another whole story. But I think this idea of trying to globalize Islamic studies is, uh, has now become, I think, very much part of the Harvard, you know, picture, the worldview at Harvard. But, you know, what I do find is that at least it's just my experience that even though we have these courses now, uh, I find that most of the students are still very much, maybe it's the factor of advising or maybe the factor of how they perceive the field. They're still very Middle Eastern focused. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'll have graduate students, you know, who come and teach my, you know, courses on Islam and they don't know nothing about Islam in South Asia or Islam in Africa. So when we're teaching units of that course, I actually have to give them mini lessons uh, to try to broaden well, their, bravo. Their, their, bravo. Their, their view. So that's what concerns me is that the field itself, the, even though we have the resources at Harvard, but, you know, graduate advising, you know, mm-hmm. is not encouraging students who are in Islamic studies to, to go global in their perspectives. And maybe because there's still people who are in the, you know, still in area studies mode, I think people who are in religion tend to think about it more globally. Globally, yeah. I'm more likely to get students in religion, Islam globally, and will take courses in South Asia and Southeast Asia and so on, but not so much in the area studies, you know, like NELC or Middle Eastern studies. So, yeah, 
There's this, thank you, Professor Asani. I mean, there's this interesting push and pull between area studies, Middle East studies, um, and uh, the direction, uh, the increased internationalization of Islamic studies. I mean, I, I remember one of the most influential yeah, influential is a good word. Uh, uh, books, reading as a graduate student was Richard Bullitt's Islam, A View from the Edge. I mean, it really, it, you know, we, I, I entered the field as well, thinking about Islam uh, and Islamic studies and uh, Islamic history from from the Middle East perspective. And, and you know, Hudson forced us to to think more broadly and to look beyond just the the central lands as they, as the uh, uh, Cambridge history of Islam refers to it as right uh, and uh, focus on on the the flourishing that occurs in the sort of the outer lands of is, of Islamdom What has been the place of Islamic studies in the wider university curriculum over the years? I'll never forget looking at a, a state university's um, catalog back in the 70s when I was writing an article on, uh, I was doing an article for a conference on humanistic studies and the, uh, and the modern university, American university, and really interested in the issue of non-Western studies or in the curriculum over against uh, the core, the old core of Western studies, which I'd been trained in, of course, classics, German, French were the things I, and European history, those were my fields before I, I came to start do, uh, graduate study. Uh, so I knew very well this sort of thing. But I remember looking at a catalog of a, you know, large state university and seeing that there was humanities and then oriental humanities. Uh, so the humanities were divided uh, into these two different, and humanities meant, of course, classics and European language studies uh, and history. Um, and Oriental studies was everything, Oriental humanities was everything else. Uh, and that to me was simply a, you know, a signal uh, of, of the sort of Western and American specifically myopia to a certain degree, or at least the, the historical burden we bore from previous scholarship uh, at the time. This was in the 1970s, early 70s, mid 70s. Uh, but it was still a vestige of a time when you really looked at, well, there's, you know, there's humanistic studies of the West, and then there's everything else. And you were making a big step in progress if you spoke about Oriental humanities, because otherwise the Oriental studies was always just, you know, odd religious ideas. Uh, out there to speak about Oriental humanities was an, odd, an oddity that I'm sure was a, a big progressive step when this university did this. Uh, today it would seem odd, I think. Um, I don't know that they're still doing it. I've never gone back to look. But um, in any case, uh, the, you know, I think this, I think this issue uh, of, of the Western, of, of our undergraduate curriculum in particular, um, has of course become much more diverse and so on. And I'm still a believer that it's nice to have uh, the classical Western fields there at the core of things. But I do think the integration of studies of Islam and of the Hindu or Buddhist world in particular, uh, those three that have been so immensely influential 
uh, and the Chinese as well. I would say those four that have this had this wide influence and still today have in major portions of the globe and major portions of the world population that to begin to be integrating these into any core curriculum program, any general education program should be a sine qua non of having such a program today. That was not true in the past. And it's only gradually become to be true in recent, really fairly recent decades or even recent years. Uh, so that's a, I mean, I think that's something that we also need to think about is integrating Islam uh, as an important part of American undergraduate studies in some fashion. It may only be in one course or even in one part of one course, but it should be part of that core knowledge of the world that you'd like to think a liberally educated American undergraduate would have when they get an AB or a BS degree. Um, I just, you know, really feel that very, very strongly. So that's all that I really have to say about that is that I do think if we remember, we want to remember that we're not doing Islamic studies just for the specialists on the non-Western world or even on the global Islamic world, West and East, but we're doing it really to try to see Islam as part of the human story uh, rather than just part of a Middle Eastern or even an Oriental uh, world. Uh, and that, that I think is very important. And I think Islamicists should keep trying to push for that kind of ideal within their own universities and their own uh, undergraduate curricula all the time. We spoke with the professors about their thoughts on the legacy of Orientalism, both the field and the 1979 book by Edward Said. You know, Orientalism constructed Islam in one way, and it was very often through a Sunni uh, discourse, and that was seen, and, and Shiism was a heresy. So that's part of the Orientalist legacy. Uh, but it's also been, let's say, intensified by, you know, Sunni theological perspectives about, you know, that are very often uh, based on discourses of power, the theology of power, of triumphalism. And so some of the Sunni polemics has, you know, among students has also sort of fueled this um, kind of thing. So I think that's one point. And I think the other part of the Orientalist legacy is, of course, thinking about Islam as a religion of empire. And so why is, the, why is the story of Islam told in a certain way? And that, again, as we've talked about before, is that the academy was complicit with the state, whether it's the colonial state or the post-colonial state, in determining discourses of Islam. And um, so obviously, on both counts, some of my work uh, is is trying to undermine those those discourse or or highlighting where those discourses are coming from and why we need to challenge them. I think another thing about the studies of most of the I think most of of us uh, that have been colleagues here at Harvard uh, has been and 
not all inspired by Wilfred Smith, certainly. I think I probably have been, certainly. Or by, for that matter, Marshall Hodgson, who was also a great inspiration to me early in my teaching career in reading. Uh, of course, he had, had died by that time, but died tragically very young. Uh, but using his three volumes and so forth, particularly his first volume, but also his second and third volumes, certainly I felt long before we had Orientalism by uh, Said that we had in those two people, because Smith already, in fact, I did an article about 15 years ago, I think it was only published maybe six or eight years ago, but I did an article for a conference on Smith, uh, just looking at him over against Said and all the things that in the 50s and 60s Smith had written against Orientalism, right. uh, not using that terminology that Said used, but using very much the same sets of arguments. And I, in that little article, parsed sort of four different things in which Smith really, uh, I think, uh, in his way, uh, had already made the points that Said makes uh, in Orientalism. And then Marshall Hodgson, whom I also mentioned in that article, I think Hodgson was the other person, the other Islamicist in this country, who long before Hodgson was already making the kind of critique of Orientalist ways of thinking, to use Orientalism in a negative sense. And so uh, there I think we already had that. And it's very interesting that Said knew nothing, so far as I was able to ascertain uh, from reading uh, uh, his book and other things he's written, knew nothing of either of those two scholars. Uh, so that's a case where, you know, two, I think, rather visionary in their own oddly different ways, uh, very visionary Islamicists in America uh, had already set some Islamic studies, a lot of Islamic studies, if you look at the influence of Chicago and Harvard, respectively, on the study on Islamic studies, I think you could say two very influential people. Uh, and Roy could say more about maybe uh, people at Princeton. I mean, I, I feel that some of the people at Princeton as well uh, have uh, certainly not been Orientalist in the way Said was talking about. So I thought that his book was in a lot of ways a little myopic, as brilliant as it was, and as much as it gave us a new kind of vocabulary that people have used, not just in Islamic studies, but in Indian studies uh, and in East Asian studies even, but particularly in South Asian studies. Certainly Said did do that. It was a, an outsider could step in, an English professor could step in and see that very, very well. But it was also myopic because he didn't know the full parameters. He didn't even pick the worst examples of Orientalism out of the European world because he didn't, he didn't say, I don't think he knew German. And I, I don't think he used any of the German scholars who were a lot more paradigmatically Orientalist in a few cases in terms of government links and in terms of, uh, of, of their Orientalist attitudes than were the French or the, uh, or the English or equally so at least. And the same thing with Dutch scholars. I mean, he could have done a lot much more, but naturally he wasn't, you know, he wasn't an, an, an Orientalist himself. So one can forgive him that certainly, and we're all grateful for the work, but I did feel like it was a myopic and one-sided work in a lot of ways. So that's, I'll close with that. Thank you for that. Because uh, I mean, I, I think about Albert Harani's uh, wonderful review of yeah. Orientalism, The Road to Morocco. He was very kind. <laughs> yes, he was very kind. <laughs> uh, but he points, points this out that, you know, uh, part of the shortcomings of Saeed's work was his, it, basically he looked over a lot of German scholarship. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's, there really is.
We closed our discussion by asking the Alurid program directors about the need for an Islamic studies program and their hopes for the future of Islamic studies at Harvard. You know, we the center was established, as you point out, 1952, or 54, sorry, but it was area studies, as, as you point out. And, and come 2005, with the gift from Prince Al-Walid for the Islamic studies program, why the need for a separate Islamic studies program, which Islamic studies had existed within the Center for Middle Eastern Studies good for a point. while. A good point, a good point. I negotiated the whole thing with Prince Al-Walid, so I know quite a lot about it. Prince Al-Walid wanted to strengthen Islamic studies in, Bar in un American universities. He gave some money to Georgetown without any kind of, uh, he more or less left them to shape it. But in our case, he wanted to say, we should teach the Islamic world as a whole, which has always been an ambition of mine. I mean, I'd love to have a colleague who did Indonesian uh, Islamic studies. And um, so uh, he said he would give four professorships and some money for library sources and so on and so forth. It was a, uh, but the, the grant also established a program. And I was the first director of the program and kind of wrote up its um, mission statement and things like that. I'd like to hear a little bit about your hopes for Islamic studies. You know, where do you see the field going or where would you like to see the field? So, um... For me, of course, I think the, the globalization is, is important, but for my own work, more, I've been more conscious of the role that, uh, that how people understand Islam is not all text-based, you know, moving away from the written text and looking at the different ways in which people experience religion, you know, experiential. So, you know, the role that the sound arts and the visual arts and the literary arts play in the day-to-day -day experience of Islam. So, for instance, you know, many people, you know, experience the Quran as a recited text, you know, work that Bill Graham has done, uh, and the discourse within the tradition of how the aesthetic of the text, the beauty of the text, you know, gets connected with the sacred, but then how people see that as, uh, as a way in which you relate to the transcendent is through aesthetics and beauty, and beauty is a sign of divine manifestation. And those kinds of notions, I think, are very important and very often underplayed. So if you look at like the stories of how narratives of how Islam became spread as a religion, you can see the discourses within the tradition itself always talk about aesthetics and beauty, like how could somebody resist not listening to the engaging with the text so so beautiful and they don't talk about socioeconomic reasons or you know empire building or anything like that so the narratives from within which often are embedded in these in this artistic discourse either the sound arts or the poetic discourse uh, and how people understand religion through poetry for example like the masnavi or hafiz uh, and that this poetry is not just read, it's experienced, you know, it's performed. And that, you know, those aspects of it, I think, you know, are, at least for me, are becoming more important. So I started teaching a course, it's an introduction to Islam, 
totally done through that perspective. So I've called it multi-sensory religion, rethinking Islam to the arts. And it's really taking this notion of God is beautiful and loves beauty and then see how this unfolds in different Muslim cultures around the world. So even that is global. So I, I look at how it appears in the Kawali in South Asia or some verses of West African, the genres of West African poetry or in Indonesia. And I bring it up to the modern period because I do feel this is something that I picked up actually from some of the works of Muhammad Arkun, where he talked about this this notion of the silent Islam, you know, the Islam of the believer that often is, he called it silent because it's not represented in the academy, it's not represented in the social media or the political media, which focuses so much on what he called, has been called the loud Islam. And that occupies the spaces. But there's other forms and these other expressions of Islam, which are embedded in forms that sometimes we would even think about looking at this is where religion is located, but it is located there, not just in the text. But trying to introduce students to that way of thinking about Islam, and then trying to get them to express their learning through engaging in art making on their own part. So, you know, thinking about the arts as a form of knowledge, but also as a arts as a form of learning. So compose a poem, design, you know, come up with a calligraphy and explain what you've done, things like that. Uh, for me has become very important, at least in the way that I'm teaching. I think maybe the seeds that maybe Anne-Marie Schimmel sort of sowed in me about the importance of the arts and literature have actually started to really sort of, I don't know, I like to think maybe blossom now because I'm just so fascinated with this stuff. And what is interesting is seeing the students getting so excited about this because they're able to connect with religion in a very different way. And I know Muslim students, they were like, wow, we never knew that this was a whole discourse in Islam because they have a very ideological perception. Um, of thinking Islam just as identity, but they don't think about Islam as experience and connected with aesthetics. So that's what I would say for me is that this is a uh, interesting new trend in thinking about Islam. Uh, Professor Graham, would you would you like to pick it up from there? Well, I don't. There's probably just a couple of things. I mean, Roy and I, from the time Roy came back to Harvard uh, from Princeton, I'd have been co-conspirators or were co-conspirators in trying to make Islamic studies really uh, some kind of reality, some kind of institutional reality at Harvard, uh, along with Middle Eastern studies. And that's, of course, how we came to have the Islamic Studies Committee within the Middle East Center, because first Roy and then I were directors in the late 80s, early 90s and uh, of the Middle East Center. And Roy, when I became director in 1990, Roy took over uh, this, uh, 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 already built an Islamic studies committee and program and so on that maybe he'll say something about. And I think for us, when we were asked, and it was, I think, probably just the two of us, basically, that did most of the consultation with the faculty group that came around for the Al-Walid program, looking to see what universities would get the Al-Walid funding. 
And I know that we prepared. I looked back on the computer not too long ago. We, I still have four or five drafts of things from, the, uh, from 2001, 2003, or whatever in that period uh, that Roy and I did on Islamic studies at Harvard. And I think the way we saw it even then was that there were all these strengths uh, scattered across departments and scattered across fields at Harvard. But there was no sort of, uh, the one thing an Islamic studies program uh, might do would be to bring these together and also focus future appointments better in terms of filling gaps and making it really global. And our first, uh, when, in the first descriptions, they've been altered a couple times by, uh, sometimes by uh, provosts or assistant provosts <laughs> and other people. Uh, but our first, uh, our first Al-Wali proposal certainly was approved of and done on the basis of our saying that we wanted to have fields like Islam in Africa, Islam in Southeast Asia, Islam right. in Central Asia, uh, Islam in South Asia, and so on, right. Islam even in America or in Europe, that these were all fields that we aspired to having represented at some point. And I guess if I had to look to the future, I would say that would be uh, certainly an aspiration. I would hope that the al program eventually will help make a reality. I want to say that uh, historians now write about everything. <laughs> His history of crops, the history of music, the history of, of uh, all kinds of things that were not considered proper history. When, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard in the history department, it was overwhelmingly both chronological history and institutional history. Uh, and I learned a lot about medieval English government, <laughs> which I haven't used much in my work, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed learning it. Uh, but it requires a lot of different hands to history. For a uh, Islamic studies person, uh, one needs, well, the ideal combination would be somebody with both deep philology and not necessarily in Arabic, but in areas other than Arabic, deep philology and historical an historical approach. Uh, some people in the past achieved that. Adam Metz, The mm -hmm. Civilization of Islam, is a beautiful book. Yes. It's not fully realized because not all the texts and everything that he could use were published in his time, but he, it's a beautiful book. It's inspired, of course, by Burkhardt's Civilization of the Renaissance, but uh, so what? It's great. Wellhausen's uh, The Arab Kingdom and Its Fall, superb old-fashioned kind of history, very good, still <laughs> whatever it is, 120 years mm. old. <laughs> but uh, those were people who had some kind of natural uh, idea of what history was and uh, had deep philology. There won't be so many people like that every generation. It's a, a long, long apprenticeship and, and hard work. There simply are so many kinds of history as we understand it today. I mean, areas like women's history have just come into, uh, uh, come into view for, for our field and, uh, and a very good thing that is. I uh, think that we have to have some teaching of Islamic studies through history departments because an historian's approach, as varied as they are, historian's approach is slightly different from a philologist's approach. It's wonderful to have people teach, as Anna-Marie Schimmel did, 
but it's also uh, wonderful to have people give uh, survey courses in Islamic history uh, as a background. In fact, I think the historical background enriches you, even if you're, uh, even if you're doing literature. So, uh, you know, may a thousand flowers bloom, <laughs> may a thousand flowers bloom, and uh, may, uh, I, we need all kinds of, of Islamic studies, and in my field history, we need more than one kind of history, there really are many kinds of history, occasional geniuses in the past, like Wellhausen and, and Metz, uh, achieved uh, real distinction, but each of them in our field wrote only one book. Wellhausen, of course, wrote a lot more in biblical studies and everything. I think that taking, taking our people seriously, the people we study, is an important thing. So much was written by an older generation about was Islam original? We were just talking about the teaching of was Islam original? Was Islamic philosophy original? Etc. was just misplaced, uh, misplaced interests. Partly in the United States, we're inclined to think about things: uh, are they original, <laughs> or are they imitated? Because we live in a strange position vis-à-vis European civilization. But uh, I, I, I think what things are in themselves is a deep part of understanding human history and Muslims are our fellow human beings, and we have to understand them in themselves uh, as they were understood themselves and as we can understand them differently, of course, across a gap of time. Thank you. That's great. I mean, uh, Islam on its own terms, right? Yeah, I think this is uh, important to, to the thinking about the field and, and its future. That was selections from our conversation with former Al-Wadid program directors, Professors Roy Muttahida, William Graham, and Ali Asani about the field of Islamic studies at Harvard and beyond. Please join us in hearing more about their individual experiences in upcoming episodes of Harvard Islamica. Thanks for listening.